Blog Talk Radio. Hello everybody, my name is Boss Rutten. Hi, this is Diego Lima. This is Rodrigo Comprido and you listen. And you guys are listening. So you are listening to the Verbal Submission. Everyone and welcome to the verbal submission. It is Sunday, April fifth, two thousand fifteen, and we have a fantastic show in store for you guys today. I'm Brian Hemminger, and uh, our show is presented by CounterMove, the your home for fantasy MMA. Now, uh, if you've been paying attention, we debuted this show back in September of two thousand ten, and we've been trying to go on a weekly Sunday format skipping every now and then when, you know, we're busy, too busy, but this is our 200th episode, so uh, I, I wanted to, to make it special, and I thought that we would get a really special guest who is uh, going to be appearing in about 30 minutes, and uh, it's uh, Dr. Anne Maria DeMars. Uh, for those in the mixed martial arts community, she was a world champion judo style at judoka in 1984, and of course what a lot of people know her as is Ronda Rousey's mother, so that's going to be a lot of fun. She's going to be, uh, we'll be call- talking to her from her Easter dinner, post-dinner over in Florida at her uh, mother's, I believe. So this could be uh, very fun. There's a lot of stuff to talk about with her. She's got a lot of stuff going on. Rhonda's got a lot of stuff going on. So this is going to be great. All right. So without further ado, let's bring in my co-host for tonight's show, uh, we have Richard Highlight Perry. Richard, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, especially after not having to stay up till two in the morning to watch the fights yesterday. Phenomenal. That was that was refreshing, having an event start at 11 a.m. and be over by 4 p.m. Just boom, it was done, and we just got to chill. I, I took a nap after the sh- after the show. It was great. <laughs> So, let's. Uh, our other co-host Jerry Rodriguez will be joining us a little bit later, uh, approximately um, about 15 minutes or so. He said he'd be calling in a little late, but uh, Dr. Anne Marie Demars will be on at 8 p.m. So, uh, in the meantime, we're going to talk some UFC Fight Night 63 and then just whatever else is bothering us in the MMA community. Uh, so, uh, Richard, let's get started. Um, first thing, let's talk UFC Fight Night 63, Ricardo Lamas, Chad Mendez. Did that fight go pretty much as you expected, or did you think Lamas would uh, have lasted a little bit longer? Well, the the, the issue with um, Ricardo Lamas um, is he tends to be somebody who is really skilled in all areas. You know, he's obviously competitive in every single fight he's in, but he tends to be someone with just this super high-level killer instinct, and the second his opponent makes a mistake, um, he can capitalize on it. And just there's nobody out there that I can think of that has his kind of killer instinct outside of Pride-era Shogun. Um, I'm sure there's 
a couple other people uh, you'd be able to name. Um, and Chad Mendes isn't a guy that makes mistakes, so I didn't think um, I didn't think Lamas was going to win this fight at all. Uh, I definitely didn't think Mendes was going to put him to sleep about six times in the first round. But uh, it was an exciting fight for the for the three minutes that we saw, and about thirty seconds longer we sh- than we should have saw it. Um, but other than that, I mean, it ended how I expected it to end, just way sooner than than I think anyone predicted. Yeah, and I... Yeah, and I, I have I to think... agree. I, uh, sorry, I'm, I had a little brain fart there. But, yeah, I have to agree that the thing that you mentioned is Lamas is so good at capitalizing on his opponent's mistakes, but Chad Mendes didn't make any mistakes. So there was nothing for him to capitalize on and while he did a lot of film study it looked like Lamas came in there with a good game plan he was using a lot of movement but he just he doesn't have a great chin and Chad Mendez had a real tight guard and all it took was one really good shot and uh, Lamas went down I mean uh, I'm, I'm not throwing anything against Lamas I mean he is an incredibly talented fighter he has really pulled off some impressive performances uh, especially that most recent one against Dennis Bermudez, where he just starched him in the first round. But uh, Chad Mendes is just on another level, man. Like, it, it it sucks for Chad because basically he is uh, he's like the John Fitch that finishes people of the of the featherweight division. Like, just stuck there in that number two spot, and unless Jose Aldo moves up to lightweight, and that could happen. Like, I don't ever see him really becoming champ. So uh, we'll have to see how that plays out this summer. He caught something from Uriah Faber that stuck him in the number two spot. Um, (laughs) And he can't even drop a weight class to to try to make another run. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, Chad Chad Bender is in in any other timeline, in, in any other division of the UFC with his skills and his power, I think he would probably be champion. Um, but Aldo is, is just, once again, you know, just a little bit better than Mendes. Um, and, you know, Mendes probably has the most power um, at, at 145. Um, the shot that he hit Lamas with, you know, he actually hit Aldo with harder shots. I don't know if you remember seeing that uppercut yeah, in the second fight. Yeah, the uppercut fight. that rocked Aldo, definitely. Yeah, that that if 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 Aldo's head didn't get into the way, he would have punched a hole through the ceiling. That was a ridiculous uppercut. Um, I I hate to say it. I mean, I I think Aldo wins at at the top of the division until he doesn't want to anymore. Um, I'm really looking forward to Chad Mendes versus Frankie Edgar, Chad Mendes versus uh, Conor McGregor. I mean, it, it's going to be really fun in the top five of, uh, of the featherweight division for the next couple of years. Here's what I'm looking forward to is if Aldo defeats Conor McGregor, and I think he will, I think Aldo moves up to lightweight. I think the cut is getting a little too much for him. And then we get Mendez Edgar for the title. If Edgar beats Uriah Faber, wouldn't that be? Yeah, sick? and and one good thing for Mendez is even Faber is probably not going to get dominated. 
Uh, you're probably going to lose, probably a unanimous decision, but it's not going to be, um, like, I, I don't think it's going to be like um, Frankie versus Cub Swanson. Um, Mendes is going to get a blueprint for what he needs to do for Frankie. Um, so that's going to be very nice for him. Yeah, I completely agree. So uh, we got some really, really exciting stuff going on right now in the the UFC featherweight division. Like, and I got to thank Conor McGregor for it. Like, he's really sparked some life in the division. I mean, Jose Aldo is the better fighter, but McGregor is by far the more marketable guy. So, and it's it's working. I mean, there is more interest in the featherweight division than there's ever been. I mean, think about this. They have. Rory McDonald fighting Robbie Lawler at UFC 189 in, in July, like the big 4th of July week type of card that they put on every year, one of the biggest cards they do every year, and the featherweight fight is headlining over that. So that's how big of a deal it is. Oh, and and it, it kind of breaks the UFC trend. I even think Dana White has come out and said this. Um, the heavier guys are always higher up on the card. And this yeah, is the only, one of the, go ahead. The only, the only time that that's ever not been the case, I think, was when Faber fought um, Barrow for the, the title. And, um, and I think part of that was at the time they were trying to really build Barrow up. And um, I think that's what they're doing with Aldo. Aldo finally has a really, really complete foil uh, in in Connor. And um, every champion that wants to kind of market themselves needs a couple of things. They need three consecutive victories within a year, and they need a really good foil to kind of play themselves off of. Mm-hmm. Definitely. All right, well, let's get back to UFC Fight Night uh, 63. So we had... Some very interesting judging. And I think that was one of the big storylines coming out of that event. And the first one was in the Liz Carmouche versus Lauren Murphy fight. And the second one was in Al Iaquinta versus uh, Jorge Masvidal. I thought both of those were very controversial decisions. I scored both of those for the, the loser. I thought Murphy won 29-28. And then I thought that... Masvidal won at least 29-28, maybe 30-27, depending on how you score the third round on uh, you know what your scoring system is. But uh, we're going to bring in my good friend Jerry Rodriguez. I want to get your thoughts on that, too. So what did you think of those two judging decisions last night? Were, did, you, did you agree with either of them, or what, what were your thoughts? Well... I did not see the uh the Murphy Jerry did we did we lose him? <laughs> Alright, that was the quickest appearance in verbal submission history, Jerry Rodriguez. Alright. <laughs> Alright, uh Richard while we're waiting for Jerry to get back. Um uh, go ahead and uh, tell us what you're thinking about either one, uh, Carmouche and uh, or Iaquinta, and I'll tell you why you're wrong. 
Okay. I actually thought um, Warren Murphy did win her fight. Yeah. Um, I think she lost the first round. She's somewhat of a slow starter. Um, she's very physically strong. Um, you thought Murphy? You thought Murphy lost the first round? I thought she lost the first round, won second and third. I thought she lost the third round. Yeah, I mean, I I just think because Carmouche got a takedown at the beginning and end of the third round, and was the more effective striker. I gave Murphy the first and second because she was the only one to get takedowns. She had the superior position in the clinch at all times, and she was the aggressor. So, and and I did, and she did land more strikes, even if they weren't yeah. as effective as Carmouche's, but she did land more, and she was pushing forward, and had better position in the clinch, so cage control, and she got the takedowns and the top position. So that's why I gave her the first two. I didn't, I, I didn't think any way that Carmouche got the first two. So, no, all right. no, I, 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 I really don't think um, Liz Carmouche won that fight, and I yeah. think one of the most telling things about that fight was um, Warren Murphy about an hour after the fight ended sent it out, uh, sent out a tweet saying, "I don't think I know how the scoring thing works. Can someone tell me, you know, what I'm supposed to be doing to win these fights?" Um, and part of the problem with judging is nobody really knows what the judges are looking for because the judges don't really know what they're looking for. As as evidenced in the Iaquinta Masvidal fight, um, with one twenty seven thirty card for Jorge Masvidal, um, who who was the judge that put in the twenty seven thirty card? I, I I'm struggling to think of his name. It was Crosby. Some, yeah, who really genuinely has beef with the Serralongo camp. Um, I'm not saying that's my conspiracy theory. I'm just saying that that's a well-known mm-hmm. issue. Um, the thing is, though, I can actually justify a 30-27 scorecard for for Masvidal. I mean, the third round was a little shaky. I mean, Iaquinta was the more aggressive fighter there, and he, he threw more, but Masvidal still outlanded him. So, I don't know. Volume, uh, all right. volume yeah. matters a whole lot when it comes to decisions. Um, um, yeah. I, I, I don't know if you've paid attention to uh, the articles that Reed Kuhn writes for MMA Oddsbreaker, but he does I some of his... I was just going to bring that up. Yeah, he does some of his Fightnomics stuff, and the more voluminous striker does tend to get the, the nod on the judge's scorecard, even if they're not landing as much as their opponent. And that was what had happened in the Iaquinta fight. Masvidal outlanded Iaquinta, but Iaquinta threw more. And I don't think the and judges were giving nearly enough credit to Masvidal's left jab, which was starching Iaquinta every time he threw it. It just popping him right in the eye, just busting his uh, face open. Every time they tried to seal that cut up in between rounds, just took a couple jabs, and then uh, Iaquinta had that scarlet mask the, the rest of the round yeah. each time. So, yeah, Jerry, are you officially... Yeah, Jerry, are you officially back with us? Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Uh, so fill me in. Who agreed with that decision? Richard, he doesn't fully agree with Iaquinta Masvidal, but he's justifying it a little bit due to the saying that Iaquinta was the more voluminous striker in rounds two and three, which could sway the judges. 
Which well, I understand. I'm not justifying it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm saying I understand why it happened. It's yeah. not right, but um, I, I just think part of the problem is the judges can't necessarily see what punches land. Um, and, and even if they could see individual strikes that land, it's who can count all those strikes over the course of a fight that doesn't work for fight metric. Um, and unfortunately, um, it's kind of a nebulous thing to look at volume versus landing landing shots while you're watching a fight. It's really hard to do. Uh, it, I'm not saying Masvidal deserved to lose, but he's been in the game long enough that he knows he needs to put volumes of uh, real solid volume out to take these close decisions. Um, he for sure should have taken that fight. But um, he really shouldn't have bet, left it to be. He really shouldn't have let Al Iaquinta get as much off in terms of, of the number of shots Iaquinta was throwing. Or rather, he should have answered that um, with more shots of his own. He, he right. absolutely ahead, deserved to lose that. He, just, he didn't do enough in the second or third round to, to win them. He was, he was not pressing the action. He could have destroyed Iaquinta, in my opinion. I mean, he he was outclassing him in that first round. I don't know why he took his foot off the uh, the gas pedal and just kind of coasted, expecting the decision. That's what I feel happened. I feel like okay, I'm the veteran. Um, I have the more notable victories. I should get the win because I'm throwing a jab, and that's all he pretty much did in the second and third round. I, I thought the judges got it right. Oh man. Here's here's one thing that does bug the hell out of me. I hate that the first round where Masvidal absolutely blistered Iaquinta and came just inches away from literally just finishing the shit out of him, it scored the exact same way as the second and third, which were close. I fucking hate that. Yeah, like, but did he do enough... Overall, in that first round, to get a 10-8? That's the thing. No. Like, it was so much more convincing than either of the next two rounds. And they're all, and the judges basically are like, 10-9. Oh, and, and then the second round, 10-9. Oh, like, those are not the same type of rounds. I Like, it makes it, me it, want half-point scoring so bad. No way. I mean, if that wasn't a 10-8, it was a 10-8.5. But here's the thing, a 10-8 is when a guy just completely obliterates his opponent and dominates him from, you know, the first second all the way through, you know, the last. And that wasn't the case. It was fairly competitive. Yep. And then, and then at the, the, last, the last minute, in the, the last minute Masvidal teed off and opened him up. I don't think that deserves a 10-8. I mean, it's definitely a 10-9. I think that definitely uh, cemented that round for him. Um, and y you're right, though. You do have a valid argument. What the hell is that judge doing if, you know, in the first round he's scoring it for Masvidal? What did Masvidal do in the second or third round to get the whole fight, in his opinion? He did <laughs> land more strikes. He landed more than Iaquinta did in both the second and third round. So you, you, it you're was counting just that a, a lame jab. 
He still did. And I, I Quinto basically moved forward in the second and third. And Masvidal, you know, I, that's the problem is you can't ask the guy to just start opening up crazy volume because when you do that, that opens you up to, to getting cracked by counter shots. Masvidal fought his fight. That's how he always fights. He always out-techniques his opponent. I mean, he... I mean, if you looked at it, skill for skill, Masvidal was light years better than Iaquinta. Basically, the only thing Iaquinta was really able to land, he landed about two good right hands in the whole fight, and he landed some leg kicks. And, and that's why and, Masvidal will always be outside the top ten, because that's mm-hmm. what he does. He does. He, he, right, he clearly outclassed them. I mean, there was a noticeable difference in the skill set there. And he didn't take advantage of it, and he didn't put the guy away. That's a fight he should have won via stoppage. He should have poured it on in the second round and and, and let the ref tee off until he stepped in. And he didn't. So that's that separates guys from second and third tier from elite. And give Iaquinta credit. I mean, I'm not his biggest fan, but at least he pressed forward. There was yeah. a big size reach there, different, you know, a big difference in size reach. And he was trying to get on the inside. He wasn't successful, but he tried. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, there's um, definitely no I, quitting him. Go ahead. Go ahead, Richard. I, I just wanted to mention, on your, on your note, with um, with the 10.5, um, the 8.5 uh, rounds, I've been arguing for, like, a 20-point must system um, where, you know, uh, a 10-9 round would be a 10-18 round, and then the second and the third round – would be a 10-18 round where they might have been closer, um, but it wasn't like a super clear win for one or the other. Um, that way you could actually have more of a gradient without having to resort, uh, resort to decimal points, and you could really clarify it. It's not a bad idea. The, and one last thing that I wanted to say is this isn't the first time that Masvidal's, you know really hurt an opponent badly in the first round and then not been able to finish him. I mean, if you watched his fight against K.J. Noons in Strikeforce, I mean, he brutalized Noons with the knee to the face as Noons was, like, ducking forward to throw a strike and really came close to putting him away, but didn't quite do it, and then took his foot off the gas in rounds two and three and just, you know, outstruck him and won the decision. So, I don't know, maybe that's just something that happens with him where, you know, he doesn't want to expend all his energy. I don't know. That's something that uh, you got to talk to him about, or I maybe we should. next time I get to interview him or something. Yeah, next time you interview him, ask him if he enjoys B fifteen. <laughs> uh, I still do think that he won that fight. I, I definitely think he won the second round. No way. I do. Like if you go back and Great. watch it, he won. Like there's really no part of the second round that Iaquinta won. Like if you actually watch it, like you, you should you should round, really dock a guy. Understand. They should start docking guys if they let fights go to a decision. <laughs> they should. I mean, you want to create some urgency, you know. Other what than if, what if people don't have power? What if they're they they just rely on, you know, outworking their opponent and making their opponent look foolish, like Jake Shields. Dock them. <laughs> Dock them. Then then you you force them to get better on their ground game. Oh man, Jerry with his controversial opinions, I love it. All right, Jerry, what did you think? Okay, you, you said you didn't see Murphy Carmouche, right? No. Okay. So 
we really can't talk about that too much because me and Richard already basically discussed it. We both thought that Murphy should have won. I, I I do want to bring up another fight before we yeah. get um, Dr. Emery on. Um, you the, mean my mom-in-law? The Yakolev versus, <laughs> um, the, the Yakolev versus Maynard fight. Um, mm-hmm. How how bad was that for Gray Maynard? I mean, you know, two, three years ago, um, Maynard would have walked right through Yakolev, and um, he just seems like a, a Yeah, he's, he's fallen off. Himself. I, I hope somebody that cares about him, you know, pulls him aside and says, just please don't sign with Bellator. You're going to get cut. Just don't don't let whatever money World Series of Fighting throws at you um, bring you over because it, it would just be too bad for your health. Mm-hmm. I mean, some, whatever I happened to him in those two Frankie Edgar fights, the number of shots he's taken, um, it just hasn't been good for him, and he's he's in a bad place health uh, health yep. wise, at least when it comes to eating shots. Yeah, he was always one dimensional. Now he's just being exposed more. Yeah, he he wasn't even that one dimensional. I mean, he was a good wrestler with a bit of power and a and had decent boxing. I mean, I mean he yeah. he had Frankie Edgar in all kinds of trouble in both of those fights of those those last two fights. So he, I, mean, I wouldn't say he was one dimensional. But, he came closer to knocking out Frankie Edgar than Aldo did. I mean, it's yeah. really hard to Way say closer. he's completely one-dimensional. But the, the he thing was. is, you know, he was he was older, so he was in his, uh, you know, I think he was about 32, 33 around the time of the Edgar fights, and then after those fights, especially after the knockout to Edgar, the loss, um, he, he fell off. I mean, he took a lot of time off, and then... He was bouncing around all kinds of other gyms. He left Extreme Couture. I think that was a mistake. And then going to other places that didn't know him as well, tried to change the way he fought. And then they threw him in there against some nasty guys. Uh, T.J. Grant crushes him. Um, who else? Uh, Nate Diaz absolutely Nate Diaz blasted him. And then him. Ross Pearson all smashing him. And at my elementary school. <laughs> He's just be, pretty and much getting wins, beat by everybody. Yeah, he wins a close decision over Gray Maynard, and then over, or over over, over Clay Guida. Uh, Clay Guida. And then Yakovlev. I thought I thought if there was anything left in Clay in Gray Maynard, he would beat Yakovlev, but he shot in for so many takedowns and couldn't keep him down. And then Yakovlev was able to get him down relatively easily and keep him down. And that was the sign right there. The second he got out wrestled by Yakovlev, I'm like, okay, that's time to hang it up. Not, not the fact that Yakovlev hurt him. It was getting out wrestled by Yakovlev. So, I hope he hangs it up. He had a, did an interview with Frank Trigg before that event. I don't know if you guys saw it. It's like 22 minutes long. It's kind of heartbreaking. I mean, it looks like Gray's on the verge of tears at the times talking to, to Trigg, and uh, I think since Gray went back to Extreme Couture for this last camp, he's been taking a more mentor role over there. I, ho- I hope he sticks with that and, uh, you know, becomes a coach over there. I mean, the guy has a ton of talent and knowledge of the sport. I think he can help a lot of people. So I hope that he sticks around and does that instead of continuing to fight. But we'll see. Uh, it, sometimes it's really tough for a guy to walk away, and especially guys on four straight losses, they don't want to end their career like that. They want to get one more win. They just they can't they can't let it go. So we'll see what happens with Gray, but I really hope he does hang it up. I hope he can go out on the losses and and just accept it. So we'll see what happens. 
Let him fight till his head falls off. Oh, come on. <laughs> he's got children now. Well, he's the one stepping in there, so let him fight until his head falls off. Oh, God. Jerry, you're the worst. Um, <laughs> okay. We had... Was there anything else from UFC Fight Night 63 that stood out for you guys? Well, uh, I think it's almost time for you to go get our guest. Um, I'll okay. briefly talk about the um, Pena... Uh, okay, Judea I was fight. just going to ask, what do you guys think about Juliana, Juliana Pena's place in the women's bantamweight division after that first-round finish, or second first-round finish in the UFC, especially coming after after that long uh, knee injury layoff? So, uh, you guys just continue with that. I don't, I'm not going to call uh, Dr. Amaria for another minute yet. I said right at 8 p.m. I don't want to call her early. So, well, uh, too uh, early to make anything of, of of Juliana. I mean, it's too early. She didn't have a top opponent. Yeah, uh, she looked awesome. She looked really, really aggressive. But it concerned me that she was throwing a lot of punches and didn't seem to really rock. Um, I don't even know. The, I don't even know who she fought. What's her name? Uh, Melinda Diva. Okay, didn't seem to. I mean, that, to me, right now, you got to put her in there. You know, I'm sure she wants Ronda. But I don't think anyone can touch her at that point. I don't think she's ready. I think she's got maybe four fights before we start putting her in the title picture. Um, I agree. I, I, I don't know about four, but I, I maybe four total. But at least two more before you think about it. Yeah, um, I'm I'm thinking um, a uh, you know someone around the ranking of Amanda Nunes, uh, or Beth Correa. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, Beth's gonna fight Ronda now. I apologize. Yeah. Um, and um, whoever uh, Pena beats next, um, if she beats next, it could be um, possibly some sort of title eliminator fight, um, or, or at least a step up to number one contendership. Um, there's not a lot of people in women's 135 that haven't lost to Ronda, so I mean it's it's really hard to say how long the UFC is yeah. going to hold on to it. I know um, I, they want to build Holly Holm up. Um, they're, yep. they're saying already that the Misha Tate versus Jessica I fight's number one contender. <laughs> so if Jessica I wins, that would be somebody fresh, although I don't think that fight ends any differently than anybody else, even though I love Jessica I. And uh, you look after that, and it's pretty much Amanda Nunes and, and Juliana Pena. So those are the only people that that Ronda hasn't you know gone in there and crushed that are even in the the top ten right now. So I think uh, that, that that does make it interesting. All right, uh, I'm going to go get Dr. Anne Maria, and um, you guys can keep uh, chit chatting about who is out there in the bantamweight division. So I'll be right back. Well, I mean, who do you see as, as the next fight for Pena? I say give her the loser of the Misha and Jessica I fight. I think that would make sense. Um, no, that, that absolutely makes sense. It doesn't sacrifice anybody uh, possibly going into contendership, and it also leaves her with one more step to to uh, to a title shot. So that that makes a lot of sense. You know, another fight that would make a lot of sense. You, you want to fast track. Because they have to fast-track opponents for Ronda at this point. Why not make Juliana 
Pena versus Holly Holm. Um, because they would not want to kill one of them as a as a contender. No, um, the only I, thing I could go ahead. You know, I, I think you you make a stronger case for either one of those ladies. If Pena can go eat, go in there and, and beat Holly, then you have a viable contender uh, at Ronda's belt. Vice versa, I, you know they're they're put put in a lot of hype behind Juliana. So if Holly goes in there and beats her, then now you have more highlight reel for Holly's uh, fight leading up to uh, to potential championship fight. All right, guys. I think, I think we ready. should. Yeah, I, I think we should hold off on talking about people that could potentially fight uh, Dr. Anne Maria's daughter. So, uh, anyway, uh, let's bring her in. She is a former world champion uh, judoka. She is a Ph.D. She is currently um, start of the head of the Forgotten Trail Kickstarter video game for part of, uh, oh, hang on, um, Seventh Generation Games, educational games. It's really great. Uh, there's so many accomplishments this woman has had. I don't want to list them. Uh, but it's just ridiculous. So, uh, Dr. Anne Maria DeMars, welcome to the Verbal Submission. Well, thanks for having me. Oh, it's uh, an absolute honor to, to have you aboard, especially I appreciate uh, you taking the time out at the end of uh, your Easter holiday to come talk to us. Uh, but I, I feel like, you know, this is a, there's a, a really important time in the, the whole family uh, to, to get out there and, and talk to us. So, first of all, I did stalk your Twitter before the show, and I want to know what happened with the, the candy stash that you guys found. <laughs> Julie and I ate it. <laughs> <laughs> My sister helped organize the local neighborhood Easter egg hunt, and they have no children still at home, so part of the perk of that is all the extra candy gets left at their house. So while my sister was out in the kitchen doing things, Julie says, let's go find where she stashed the candy. <laughs> and since she's not on Twitter, she'll never know. Oh, that's great. Well, you got 9,000 followers. You don't think one of those people is going to be like, hey, she's eating your candy. <laughs> like, call her up. <laughs> nah, I don't think so. <laughs> well, that's I don't think terrific. it'll rat you out. That's good. That's good. All right. Well, Let's get started. There is so many things I want to talk about. So first of all, I want to talk about the, the big thing that's really been going on with you. You guys are doing this uh, Forgotten Trail educational game. And um, so uh, it looks like it's, there's a Kickstarter going right now. It looks like there's 12 days left. and It's almost funded halfway already. So is that yeah. uh, meeting your expectations on everything? Like, how's that going so far? Well, I think that's pretty good. What we found, we did a Kickstarter before, and one of the things we're trying to do is change the way people think about games. Because, you know, when somebody says educational games, I think that brings to mind something that they make you do in school or the kids do. And we talk about our games as being like push-ups for your brain. That, you know, what age, what age level are push-ups? Well, they're not really. I, you know, I travel a lot for business, and I might be in my hotel room and do push-ups and sit-ups just to keep from getting out of shape. There, so there's no age level, and if you do more of them, you get stronger. So we're trying to get people away from looking at educational games or something kids do to, you know, we've all met that guy 
that was a good athlete in high school, and you run into him years later and think, dude, what happened to you? You know, and they're out of shape and overweight. And, and I meet people the same thing intellectually. You know, we were young back in the day, and they were really bright, and we'd have conversations, and now it's like, you know, they got brain damage. And it's because they've been working the same job. It's not at all mentally challenging. They've been going home and watching primetime television. And so we're trying to say, look, you people play games all the time. What if you played World of Warcraft and you got to level 20, you really understood algebra. How cool would that be? You know, how about if you played a game and, you know, in there you were scaling the pyramids and somehow you figured out, like, how to calculate how to build pyramids or, you know, what the history of this was. So we're trying to make games that are not just for kids, but for anybody who would like to be smarter, that you'd like to feel like that time wasn't completely wasted, but you'd really have a lot of fun doing it. So, so it's going good in a big way as far as getting people to know about what we're doing. And as far as Kickstarter, we did one before successfully, and less than 5% of Kickstarter projects ever get over $20,000. And we hit that over 20000 a couple of years ago when we did this. And usually what happens is you get a lot of people back at the beginning and a lot of people back at the end. You know, the last first few days, last few days, it was kind of a low in the middle. So to be at almost 50% uh, with 12 days ago is pretty good. So we're pretty confident about it. And I'm a statistician, so the other thing I found is that um, you, that if you look at the statistics from Kickstarter, that I think it's something like 80% of the projects that if they get over 40% or more, eventually get funded. It's 94%. I'm trying to remember that. Um, so the odds of us getting fully funded are really good. But if you want to go to um, sevengenerationgamescom slash Kickstarter and back us, that would be awesome. You get awesome stuff. It's not a charity. You if you back us on Kickstarter for $10, you will get the game when it comes out. If you back us up to $100, you will get the game. You'll get our other games. You'll get posters. You'll get a, an autographed picture of Rhonda and Julia and Sophie the dog. The dog is the winner of the contest to be the game. So, yeah, there's all kinds of cool stuff going on. Is that more than you wanted to know? That was everything I wanted to know. Um, <laughs> now I want to know um, what – made you want to get into video games in your 40s after all the stuff you'd been doing, being a professor, being a statistician, being a mom, doing the judoka world champion, everything. What made you want to start this? Well, the funny thing is I wanted to do this in my 20s. And when I applied to graduate school for my PhD, they said, what do you want to do a dissertation on? And I said, I want to do video games to teach math. And the reason is because I worked with a lot of, of youth that were incarcerated, that get problems, and a lot of them were very rebellious against authority. And I thought, well, if I could develop some game where they could play that on the computer, remove the teacher or parent, whoever they were rebelling against, then they could catch up academically and maybe graduate from high school or, you know, get into college. And then the psychologists that, you know, work other things could provide counseling and, and solve those problems. But if you think about 30 years ago, what the possibilities were for computers, it was like text-based stuff, you know. So I had the idea, but the technology wasn't there. And then in between, you know, my husband um, got really ill and then he passed away, and I had three little kids to support on my own. So I went for the thing that paid the most money right then, which was doing statistical consulting for corporate clients. 
But then when the girls, now they're older and they're out on their own supporting themselves, so I looped back around to it. But something I've wanted to do pretty much my whole life, and now these technologies caught up and, you know, my life circumstances have caught up, and so I'm doing it. Oh, wonderful. And uh, my co-host wanted to know, how long have you uh, been wanting to or thinking about creating uh, educational games? Is it just something that's always been in the back of your mind and now you just got the time to do it? Pretty much. It's always been, yeah, it's always been in the back of my mind. And I felt like, like I said, I had one kid that was going to the Olympics. I had two others that I put through college and then graduate school. And so it, to, to do a startup, you have to take a real leap of faith and say, I mean, I got paid for two or three years. So it was something that I wanted to do. And I, a lot of these ideas now that are going to the game, and this is one of the reasons we're doing Kickstarter, there's so many ideas that I have. But with only one or two people, you can only do a few things at a time. But, yeah, it's been in, on my mind for a very long time. And everywhere I go, whether it's you know, going to Disneyland or Universal Studios, and I'll say, see little details. Because, you know, that would make a cooler game. If you notice how they... You know, even in the third, the second story window at Disneyland, they've got, you know, books and things, and just to make it look like a whole real cool actual world. I want to do that. So, yeah, I'm thinking about it. But the only time I'm not thinking about it is probably when Ron is fighting and I'm too nervous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I I, I got to admit, when I was little, my favorite thing to do at school was to go into the computer lab and play Number Muncher or Math Blaster or whatever those educational, like, little dorky math games. I love to play them. So I, I think that they are definitely good things. Oregon Trail, definitely. Uh, right. Now, <laughs> uh, what, what was the – is there, like, a special kind, the, the seven-generation games name? Yeah, we actually started out working with the Spirit Lake Dakota Nation in North Dakota. The original idea for the games came from – I had been in Washington, D.C., analyzing data from the National Indian Education Study, and we found that the more Native American kids had classes about their culture, the less well they did in math. And a friend of mine, my business partner, was there, and he's from the Spirit Lake Nation, and that he's the first person that was um, Spirit Lake Dakota to earn a doctorate. And I was surprised by those results because I thought learning about your culture was good for you. And Eric said to me, well, no, because think about it you have a finite amount of time in the school day and if you put in cultural classes or Dakota language or whatever, you're going to have to take out something else. And so the kids spend less time on that. So we take the, the taxi back to the airport and he said, I refuse to accept that my kids will learn their culture as they'll learn math. You know, you have to come up with something. I don't know how it became my responsibility. I've never figured that part out. But so I had been thinking about doing these math games, and so that's how it started out, that it was originally addressing problems with Native American children on reservations being below average in math. And one of the things that the Dakota believe is that the earth is not ours. It, uh, we're stewards for the seventh generation, but things that you do will carry, have effects carrying forward for seven generations. But, you know, if you are a terrible parent, that will affect your children and it will affect the way they raise their children and so on. And so you should think about that when you make decisions, how is it going to affect not just you and your life today, but how is it going to affect the world seven generations hence? And so that's very good for me. Okay, excellent. All right, now in uh, my preparation for this interview, I went through and I was reading a whole bunch of your blog entries 
And uh, one of the big things going on in your family right now is Rhonda's book coming out, My Fight, Your Fight. So I, I saw that you had a chance to read it. And I know you're not allowed to talk about uh, what was going on in the book yet until it's released, obviously. And uh, But I want to know, did you really have to sign something that promised you wouldn't sue your daughter, your daughters, for writing this? Like a, what was going to be in the, in I the book? I didn't sign anything. You know, the, the legal people went through it with a fine-tooth comb because, you know, she did name names of some people. And mm-hmm. she did talk about events. And so they wanted to verify that everything that she said happened, happened. You know, there were some things that her, that are her opinion. If she says, I think you're a douchebag, well, that's her opinion. And she has every, <laughs> every legal right to say that. You know, if she says, um, you know, you torture small puppies, then unless she has some actual proof and pictures and people that swear, yes, I saw him torturing puppies on the 3rd of September, then she can't do it. So the legal, they had two different lawyers go through with a fine-tooth comb. And so one of the things they said, well, you talk about your mom in here a lot, you know, and did your mom read it? And, you know, and they just said, my mother is not going to sue us. And I said, no, <laughs> I promise not to sue them, but I did not promise not to whack them upside the head if there's things I didn't like it. <laughs> now, uh, I read your blog post about the book. Um, obviously, you can't talk about what was in it, but you mentioned that there were some things that weren't in the book that surprised you that you thought would be. And I was wondering, could you share anything that you thought should have been in the book that wasn't? Well, I don't know if should have, but I was a little surprised. She really didn't talk about too many people she knew in judo very much. Mm-hmm. There were a couple of times here and there when she might mention one person or another. Um, and I, I don't know that they were not significant to her, but you have a certain number of pages. And so when they say you would have, you know, 300 pages and you get to over that, then you have to go through and start cutting stuff out and think, well, what was the most significant thing I want to include? So I was a little surprised um, how little she talked about some of the people in Judah. Okay, I, yeah, I can definitely understand why that would uh, surprise you, especially considering how important that was for so long in her uh, career. Now, you also wrote a book, um, Winning on the ground for you know judo and MMA techniques for on for a yeah. ground. So I know that was more of a, a technical manual. And I was wondering, you mm-hmm. know, considering you've got such an incredible story to tell as well, could we ever see a memoir from Dr. Anne Maria DeMars? Well, it's a possibility, but I would say it's pretty far down my list of things to do because I'm running a company that makes video games and we just yeah. got funding to do the, a new game. So the forgotten trailer is coming out and we're working on with a couple of school districts developing games that will now be bilingual. So you can click on it and it will explain things to you in Spanish and in English. So there's a whole lot of things on my plate before that. So it's possible. It's possible to do another judo book at some point, but Right now, making games and running a company and building from a small company into a bigger company is sucking up my whole life in a good way. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Now, uh, a slight change of subject, but you've mentioned that you were not a fan when Rhonda decided she was going to be an MMA fighter. What I want to know is, what did you think of her love of professional wrestling growing up? Um. Well, I thought it was fine. I mean, it's just something you watch on TV. So, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't think there was anything bad. I, I'm, 
I'm definitely not one of these parents that are like, oh, my God, she's watching violence or it's <laughs> violence or pseudo-violence. So what? I thought it was perfectly fine. To me, professional wrestling is sort of like a soap opera with wrestling. It. So it's not my mm-hmm. cup of tea, but tons of people are really interested in it. So, yeah, I thought it was it was fine. Her and her sister were really, we, I don't know if you remember this, but when they were young, there was even a cartoon, I think, that had Hulk Hogan in it and some of the mm-hmm. professional wrestling stars. So, no, I just thought it was some minor amusing things that the kids were interested in. Well, and, of course, she I, loved I, that Hulk Hogan wrestling buddy. Oh, absolutely. And, and I bring that up because I was, uh, last Sunday, a week ago, uh, we didn't even have our show because I was watching WrestleMania with my friends. And lo and behold, you know, The Rock comes out and does this big thing. And then he freaking brings Ronda out in the middle of the ring. And they have this big, crazy moment. 70,000 people are chanting for Ronda Rousey. She got a better reaction from the wrestling fans than she's ever gotten from the MMA fans because she's so you know, divided sometimes. I was just wondering, what what did you think of that whole thing? I mean, that was wild. Well, you know, it's funny because I was in Central California at the same time. I had to go up and give the, the keynote address at this uh, at the Livingston Young Women's Conference. Mm-hmm. And so Ron told me, well, I'm going to be up in Northern California too, but it's a big secret. You can't tell anybody. I'm like, who am I going to tell? Okay. <laughs> um, so I had no idea. I just knew she was going to be, be in Northern California. I didn't even know what she was going to be there for, what she was doing. And then... I was driving back from the conference, and Roddy, Dr. Roddy Ferguson calls me and says, oh, my God. And I'm just thinking, what, what did Rhonda do? She ran over somebody's dog. <laughs> you know? so I had no idea. I still haven't seen it because we were going to the Fast and Furious premiere, and Shana Baszler had it on her phone, and she was going to show it to me. And for some reason, this is the truest first world problem of all time. For some reason, the Wi-Fi and the limo cut out at the beginning of it, so I never did get to see all but the very beginning. So I still haven't seen it. Well, let me just say, she judo-tossed Triple H. That was the greatest thing I've ever seen. So, and it was it was hilarious. Like, she looked like such a badass. Like, even more badass than when she was destroying people in 14 and 16 seconds in the cage. Like, it was that good. So, okay. if you get a chance to see it, you need to see it. I mean, it was, it was better yeah. than her... Uh, uh- the view appearance, the Tonight Show, everything. <laughs> yeah, I was disappointed because I was all excited. She was like, oh, I got on my phone. It went through the first couple minutes, and then I didn't see it. All right. Now, uh, a couple other things I definitely want to touch on. Um, you know, you mentioned that you know Rhonda switched over to MMA during her physical prime. You were, you were really surprised. Do you think that if she'd have kept training in judo and done all that stuff and really gone for it, um, that she would have won gold in the 2012 Olympics for judo? I don't know. It's possible, but I think that she made the right decision because mm-hmm. truly, I mean, after 2008, her heart wasn't in it. And it's really hard to go and win the world championships, win the Olympics, if you don't want to really, really bad. And I think she had done judo from the time she was 11 years old to she was 21. And you know, throughout her entire childhood, adolescence, and I think she was just done. So I think she had the physical ability, she had the technical ability, but I think after 2008, her heart wasn't in it. 
Okay, completely understandable. Now, sticking with the on the judo side of things, my co-host has a question for you about uh, Japan. He wanted to know in the the 1970s, you got a chance to study in the in Tokyo at the the Wasada University, and he wanted to know what was that whole environment like. Uh, just must have been just crazy different. It was actually really great, and part of it is because I was just ignorant. <laughs> I mean, I was 18 years old. I was a junior in college, and I went over there as an exchange student. Washington University in St. Louis had an exchange program with Waska, so they sent two students. So part of it was I was part of an exchange program between two very, very well-renowned universities. So when I went into the judo program and asked, can I work out with you, it was kind of a touchy thing that you don't want to say no go away because she's here from this university that's kind of our sister school and I think if I had just been like a person off the street doing judo and came in they would say are you kidding no you can't train here and it was funny I went in and, and again you know it would be like if you were an a foreign student at USC and you went in and asked the Trojan football coach can you practice with the football team but <laughs> I was a kid going to a college in the Midwest and like I said I was an 18 year old college junior so I was really good academically, but not the most <laughs> worldly. So I just went in and asked the judo coach, can I train with the judo team at the college? And immediately the assistant coach said, no, no, you cannot. And in Japan, things, I presume it's not as much so today, but things were very hierarchical. You're the senior coach, and you have to say, and the junior coach doesn't say anything without asking you. And so... The head coach was Osawa Sensei, and he's very well renowned. He's probably one of the very few people ever made sense to be black box. And he came up and he said, well, you didn't ask me. Yes, she can do it. I think partly just because, you know, who are you to say I'm the head coach? So they told me I could come to judo there. And I went, you know, two, three days a week, every week while I was in Japan. And that was just unheard of, women working out the men's team. And then at the Kodokan, which is the place where judo started pretty much they only had women were not allowed to work out men so they had a women's division but they probably had 60 or 70 women there so i worked out there so usually i did judo i had college classes of course and then i would go do judo at the college and then i would go over to the kodakon after after school and do judo there and then go home and do it again the next day it was great now i want to know uh, they have a special word for foreigners over there. I don't know if they were using it back then, but did anybody ever call you a, a gaijin? Gaijin, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I figured. And it was um, physically nice, Nick. Um, yeah. But I didn't call worse things. <laughs> Probably true. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, Richard, did you have any uh, questions you wanted to, to ask Dr. DeMars? Um, okay, Jerry, go ahead. Yeah, first of all, I want nice. to say, I, I, yeah, I'm nice. Come on. Let me out of my cage. Jerry um, Jerry loves Rhonda. He is in I love, love with her. Rhonda. I am. And, and what got, how many he would, times he do you would, hear that? He would just be a Bob, though, I promise. <laughs> um, no, my question is, have you met any of the other um, moms uh, of the women Rhonda has destroyed and um, had a genuine dislike for them 
Um, no, I haven't had a genuine dislike for them. I met Liz Carmouche's mom, who seemed perfectly nice enough. Um, I met, uh, I think she was Kat Pangano's mom. There was a lady at the waiters, but I don't know if she was her mom or just like a really close family friend. But she seemed perfectly nice. So, no, I think those are the only two mothers that I met. And I met them both briefly, and they were perfectly nice and polite and got nothing. Do you think you would hate Cyborg's mom? Um, <laughs> I, I don't know because I don't know anything about her. <laughs> well, other than, you know, Cyborg has taken some cheap shots at our Rhonda, and I feel like she's been out of place. And I know I... Well, you know, I, think, I, I think that too, but, you know, you can't take... You're not responsible for your adult children. So if your kid's an ass and your kid is five, <laughs> then it's your responsibility. But if your kid's an ass and your kid is, you know, 29, then I think they have to take the responsibility themselves. <laughs> uh, awesome. How would how would that – I'll just ask you, would she last around with 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 Rhonda? Cyborg or her mom? <laughs> Both. <laughs> Cyborg. Well, I think her mom, her mom pretty well not. Um, no, I don't think she will. I think Rhonda will break her arm. Um, you know, people, when I say that, say all kinds of nasty things. But Rhonda's been doing judo since she was 11 years old. I started teaching arm bars when she was 12. So she has had 16 years of trying to arm bar people from every possible position. So you'd have to be something super stellar amazing to keep out of that position for five five-minute rounds. Now, you know, there's always the possibility that Rhonda could slip and um, sweat on somebody else's blood on the mat and fall and somebody could leap on her. You know, anything is within that realm of point zero 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 one percent possibility, which is why I always worry. But, no, here's the thing about arm bars. I only need to get your arm once. You can punch me 11 times, but if I get your arm once and do a backbend on it, you're done. Oh, I completely understand that. And, one thing that I think really stood out to me was in the, the last fight against Katzengano, Ronda pulled off an arm bar that I don't think she said she'd even practiced before. It was just a, a crazy position, and she just went for it. Is that kind of originality just something that was always there with her, that you know, she's able to, to pull out these kind of moves just off the top of her head just because she has that lifetime of training? Yes, I'm crushed. You obviously did not read my book. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Two of the things I talk about, um, one to a greater extent than the other, are kinesthetic sense and transition. Kinesthetic Mm -hmm. sense is what, you know, amazing dancers like, say, Martha Graham have, what really great basketball players have. It's that knowledge of where your body is in space relative to other things. And so if you've been training in something like judo for more than half of your life, you develop that. And in fact, when she was a kid and throughout her, you know, developmental years and judo and that, we worked on a lot of drills to develop specifically that strength. So that you would, even if you're flipped backwards in the air, know where the mat is at all times. So, you know, we used to do a drill, in fact, I still do it with the kids that I teach at Gompers Middle School now, where you grab the kid by both lapels and you lower them towards the mat and just at some random time you let go and they have to turn out and land, you know, and land on their hands and on their hands like a cat. Um, so you can develop that skill. 
And then the other thing that was my strength as a competitor, and I tried to teach Rhonda, and she's also very smart, so she's been, you know, developing with people all around the world, is transition. And transition is that movement from standing to mat work that people often don't work on. And it's one of the, the weaknesses jiu-jitsu players often have relative to judo. And I'm going to say this about judo mat work. People in judo are like that poem by Longfellow about the little girl with a little curl right in the middle of her forehead. And when she was good, she was very, very good. And when she was bad, she was horrid. Well, people in judo mat work tend to be either very, very good or horrid because they start standing, they rely on standing. But the people who are very, very good work that transition. You know, that split second when you go from standing to mat work where the other person's like, oh, my God, and you're going for their arm in midair or you're twisting into that pin in midair. So that's something that you can drill and train at. And I think I was, when I was younger, it was very unusual for people to do that. And that's part of the reason I won the world championships, even though, you know, I blew my knee out when I was 17. So I won the world championships not being able to stand on one of my legs. So, yeah, Ron has had that, even though it's not working that particular move, she's worked on those skills, on developing kinesthetic sense, on, on transition more than half of her life. Yeah, and, and something else that stood out to me is the difference between judo and Brazilian jiu-jitsu in terms of submissions is in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, they're a lot more patient. You know, they're more methodical. Mm-hmm. And in judo, because especially recently with the, the newer rules where they'll stand you up quickly, you have to be impatient. I mean, you have to go for it. You have to go all out for it, and you have to get it quick. And it's all about speed. And I think that's another thing that has been a huge benefit to Rhonda. She just catches these people off guard with how quick she she switches to these arm bars, and they're just not ready for it. They're so used to people setting it up and trying to get the the, the legs in the perfect position, and and she's just able to just latch it on in seconds and, and tap them out immediately. And is, is that something that you think is just a huge benefit to her uh, judo training and then maybe that, that timer that they start almost when the fight goes to the ground? I think yes. And I also think, and this is something else that did not get in the book, there's a story I'll play that I think is very illustrative. She was fighting in her first senior national championships, and Rhonda was known for a few throws. She did an Ichimata, which is an inner thigh throw. Um, she did a Sotogari, which is, I think they call it a leg sweep or something in MMA. So she did a couple of throws that she was well-known for and bounced people all over. And she was already number one in the U.S. So she goes to fight Gracie Jividen, who had been on the world team a couple of times. And Gracie is smart, a good judo player, and Grace has practiced and practiced and practiced to defend against those throws. And in the middle of the match, Rhonda pops into a drop shoulder throw and slams Grace flat on her back. And Gracie gets up and she looks over at Trace Nishiyama, who is from our, our club, Venice Judo, and said, I have never seen Rhonda do a drop shoulder throw in my life before now. And Trace says to her, just because you haven't seen it doesn't mean she doesn't have one. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. And uh, again, yeah, she just is able to pull these things out that, uh, you know, even if they haven't been seen before, she's got so many other little tricks up her sleeve. Just if one thing doesn't work, she can she can transition to the next. I think that's what really makes her so talented. And speaking of multi-talented, 
I, I don't know if you got a chance to see it yet, but uh, she did debut a Furious Fast and Furious Seven uh, this weekend. Did you get a chance to yeah, to see yeah. Yeah, Rhonda's performance? On, it was Wednesday. Yeah. Okay. What'd you think? Oh, I thought it was awesome. Of, of course, I'm a little biased, so I thought I would like to see see her character more in it. So, but um, <laughs> yeah, it was it was awesome. I thought it was a really good fight scene. I thought it was super well done. And one thing, too, as somebody who has maybe possibly been in some fights, it looks really realistic. Sometimes you see fight scenes in movies and you're like, come on. <laughs> but, no, it was really good. It was really well done. And I think, too, it was smart because it was believable because they showed a fight scene where, like, Michelle did, well, I, you know what, I'm not going to spoil it for the movie, but I thought it was really well done. <laughs> well, I, I did see a clip where it was, like, Rhonda and a group of uh, girls and Michelle Rodriguez is just taking them all out. And then Rhonda yeah. fights her, and like that was like how, where the cliff ended. Though they didn't actually start fighting, but uh, yeah. so I got to see a little bit of the setup of the whole thing. So I haven't seen the movie yet. So I'm, I'm glad that uh, you enjoyed it. It looks like it's getting rave reviews. I mean, 83 percent on Rotten Tomatoes. That's fantastic. Uh, so you know, it's going to be a really good date movie, and then that sounds really funny mm-hmm. because there's a lot of stuff in it that will appeal to. Guys, you know, there's a lot of fighting, shooting, and car chases. But you could bring your girlfriend because, first of all, there's strong women in it, and there's just some scenes I I could see where it would, it would be something that you wanted to go see. But unlike a lot of those movies like that, you wouldn't have to make a deal with your girlfriend. Okay, we go see this, and then we'll go see Shades of Grey with you that you want to see. You could both want <laughs> to go see that. So, um, yeah, I think it's going to do really well because of that. Because guys want to go see it with their buddies. A lot of women because it's got you know, a lot of popular female actresses in it will want to go see it. And, yeah, you could go see it on a date. And at the end of it, you would think, oh, that was a really cool movie. And a date would be like, oh, that was really nice. <laughs> uh, that, that's awesome. I can't wait. I'm, I'm definitely going to be checking it out. Now, uh, one of my last things I got for you, uh, Rhonda has a big fight coming up against uh, Betch Cohea. She's actually going down to Brazil to, to, to fight the Brazilian. And I was wondering, what, what do you think about that, just – that whole experience that she's probably going to expect. Do you think that she's going to be well received? Do you think, or do you think she'll get the Brazil treatment? Um, well, she seemed to get pretty good, a pretty good reception the last time she was mm-hmm. down there. I think that it will, I think it was a very good business decision. I'm pretty certain that it will sell out. And I think people in Brazil will be interested partly because it's somebody from Brazil. I think one reason people might be interested and, in, this is not a good thing, but Rhonda does tend to hold a grudge. So, mm-hmm. you know, her saying she's going to learn why I'm the last woman in the world you should fuck with, I think, yeah. I think it will be an interesting fight. Yeah, I, I think that this could be one of those situations where, you know, Rhonda might have her on the ropes and just want lets her stick around just to torture her a little longer. Just uh, well, I think that's what happened with the, the second Misha Hate fight. People are like, "Oh, you know, Rhonda, Misha got out of third round." So, no, Rhonda just wanted to beat up on her for a long time. So <laughs> you may see that. Um, yeah, because Rhonda does not like Misha. So I think Man, the same so. thing too. You know, she may unbar her right away, or she may just decide, "I want to beat up on you for a long time and make you pay." I'm a betting man. Result, I, I, I might. I might take that into account that Rhonda might want to make this poor girl suffer, and I'll, I might have to bet that this fight goes out of the first round. I could win some money here. This is insider information. Um, 
<laughs> All well, right. no, because uh, it could go one way or the other. You never know. Oh, I know, I know. And uh, uh, last thing, you know, Rhonda does seem crazy supportive of her friends. And do you think, you know, has, has she always been like that? Uh, you know, standing up for for friends like that because you yeah. know, Betch has has been pretty cruel with uh, the the two force four horsewomen she beat. Well, Rhonda has always been loyal to a fault, and I mean that literally. Now, in the case of Marina and Shane and Jasmine, I really like them all a lot, so I don't think it's misplaced. But no, she's always been super loyal to her friends, and sometimes friends that she ought to, you know, leave in a ditch. But yes, she's one of those people that. If she's your friend, she's your friend, and you would have to, you know, practically, you know, sell her credit card numbers on the internet for her to realize you're a jerk. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, that could definitely uh, backfire, I guess, if it's you're loyal to the wrong people. All right, uh, Jerry, Richard, do you guys have any last questions? I take that as a no. No, I'm good. I think uh, Jerry okay. had to step away for a minute. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, uh, I think that'll do it. So last thing I had for you, uh, uh, Dr. Anne Maria, is if you had any uh, last things you wanted to say, any last plugs for the Kickstarter, for anything else going on uh, in that world, uh, the floor is yours. Well, yeah, I would say check out 7generationgamescom slash Kickstarter. You should watch our video because it's really funny and it's really cool. And it's like push-ups for your brain. Everybody could stand to be a little smarter. Everybody could stand to be a little stronger physically and mentally. And it's a good thing. So you should check it out. And this is what I do in my grown-up job. And Winning on the Ground is a good book. Obviously, you didn't read it. I did not yet. <laughs> it's a Sorry. Good book, <laughs> and, yeah, My Fight, Your Fight, the book that Rhonda wrote with her sister Maria is, is a really good book, too. It's, it's a good story about a good person and got a lot of good advice. So there you've got your reading laid out for you. You've got your game plan laid out for you. I'm just a full-service individual. Well, I, I really, really uh, am excited about all this stuff going on, and I really appreciate you stopping by the show to talk to us. It was a, an absolute honor, and uh, I'm going to let you go and just say uh, thank you so much for stopping by and enjoy the rest of your Easter holiday. And a happy Easter to you, too. All right, thanks. Have a have a terrific rest yeah. of your night. Bye. All right, that was Dr. Anne Maria DeMars stopping by the verbal submission, talking Rhonda, talking WrestleMania, talking uh cage fighting, talking judo, talking uh seventh generation gaming, educational gaming. It was an absolute treat getting to speak with her. Uh, Richard, what'd you take from that interview? Uh, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I love the fact that um, people are starting to take educational games seriously. Uh, they've always been somewhat of a joke, and um, even among educators. So it's it's nice to see somebody with a with both an education and a, a programming background get into it and, and and do some good with it. Oh, I completely agree. That was that was a lot of fun. All right. Uh, is there any last stuff you want to go over before we uh, call it a show? Um, you know, no. Um, I will say the uh, Michael Chiesa fight was uh, really enjoyable. Um, you know, he really did dominate Mitch Clark completely. Uh, I, I don't think we've ever – I can't think of another another time we've seen um, a, a 29-26 unanimous 
uh, card across the board. Um, and uh, it, it's good to see they got something right as far as judging, uh, you know. But other than that, I, I think we're, we're kind of capped off for the night. Yeah, that sounds about right. Oh, uh, and one last thing. Um, yeah, yeah, sorry, Jerry, you missed the very end. It wasn't anything crazy. Just asked uh, a couple last things and then uh, let her go on her way. I mean, it is Easter after all. Um, but um, <laughs> we did have a verbal submission. It was about a week ago on Friday we had the new Bellator Bantamweight champion, Marcos Galvao, defeats Joe Warren, making Joe Warren scream in agony during a knee bar. It was and the greatest submission ever. Were you there, Jerry? I can't remember. No, this one was in uh, Thackerville, Oklahoma. Never mind. No, I, I wasn't there, but I was loving it. Uh, and he screamed <laughs> like a little girl. And then he tried to argue. Yep. He, uh, <laughs> he, he didn't did, understand he the did. rules. He did apologize for trying to argue. Um, uh, he tweeted out uh, a couple of things. The first thing he tweeted out was "fuck" in all caps. Um, then the second thing he tweeted out was, "I shouldn't have tried to argue. I was in the heat of the moment. I was wrong. He's the champion." So I give him props for that. I still don't like him, but you know, at least he didn't roll out with the Tito Ortiz list of excuses. Um, which would make me respect him, if not like him, a little bit more. Sounds like you're going gay for him, Richard. <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with it, but yeah. And we'll be uh, we'll be changing the profile picture for verbal submission to Joe Warren screaming in pain instead of Chil Sonnen during Paul Philo, since that was so long ago, and this one's much more recent, much more notable. So that'll be exciting. I should I'll probably do that after the show here, but uh, all right. Can you so, have a uh, little? The little the squeal <laughs> that he let out. I I will try to find it like a a vine or something of it. Okay, and uh, so last thing before we head out, do you guys have anything you want our listeners to check out that uh, that piqued your interest this past week? I would okay. say, ah, check out um, my girlfriend on Shameless, Emmy Rossum, season finale tonight. Good show. I do like Shameless. I have not watched this past season and a half. I, I I think the last season I watched was the first half of season three, and I have not been tuning in, but I need to. I've heard it's really good still. Yeah, William H. Macy is the man on that show. He's funny as hell. Oh, yeah. And uh, Richard? Um, check out is, – is, this sounds like the worst thing in the world – um, but I I find it uh, it's it both the worst music video and the worst song I've ever heard, and simultaneously the the best thing I've ever watched in my entire life. Um, look up a band called Broken Side, uh, Broken C Y D E, all one word, and the first Google result uh, is a, a music video called Freaks with an X. Uh, it might be the worst thing ever created by uh, by humanity. It's awful, and I can't stop watching it. Um, it, it it's by far the worst thing I've ever seen, and it's, everyone should see it just so they can stop comparing 
just so they can stop saying songs are awful because they don't know yet. Okay, well, I'm going to counter that with some good music. There's a band that I saw play live uh, last year. They opened for Chevelle. Their name is Highly Suspect. Um, they were unbelievable. Just very unique rock sound. And uh, they're playing up at Rock on the Range, uh, the, the huge rock festival in Ohio. That's three days in May. And they have a, their debut album's coming out later this year. And I've been just pay, paying attention, following along, just to see what's been going on with them because they were so good live. And they released two singles. The, they have like a SoundCloud, if you look it up. It's highly suspect, and the songs are Lydia and Lost. And look them up. I think you'll love them. Um, these guys are just a bomb. I, I listen to those two songs all the time. I'm going to get their album the second it comes out. And I'm really excited to see them play live, too, again. So uh, definitely check those uh, guys out. Screw Broken Side. I got one. Listen to Broken Side I got first, one last and plug on the opposite side of the music spectrum. Okay. Um, all right. It's, it's a band that I found completely randomly. Um, and I, I don't even remember the the uh, Google uh, link that led me to it. Um, it's a, a Japanese band called uh, Yuchu Kobini. I'm probably butchering that. Just Google U-C-H-U-C-O-N-B-I-N-E, uh, C-O-N-B-I-N-I. And the first Google result is a really, really, really interesting, uh, really interesting kind of pop-rocky type song. All right, excellent. Well, I think that'll do it for today's show. So huge thank you to uh, Ronda Rousey's mom, Dr. Anne Maria DeMars, stopping by, uh, plugging her Kickstarter, and then talking about everything Ronda and everything else going on in uh, her world. So that was an awesome interview. If you missed it, come back and check the archive. Uh, should be posted in about five to ten minutes. And then uh, you can check out their Kickstarter. I'll be... Uh, posting a link here in the chat if you want to take a look at it. Pretty cool. I'll also tweet it after the show. And uh, that'll do it for today's show. So we should be back to a regular scheduled programming. There's no big football Super Bowl. There's no uh, UFC events on Sundays. There's no WrestleMania. So we should be ready to go. Episode 201 next week. No delays. So make sure to tune in next week. We'll be back to our regularly scheduled programming of 6.30 p.m. instead of 7.30. We pushed it back a little bit because it was Easter so uh, that we wouldn't have to talk for an hour and a half before Rhonda's mom could come on. And uh, so that'll do it. So uh, thank you guys so much for stopping by. And uh, what time is it, Richard? It is code angle time. Baby.